and the brave new world begins. When all men are paid for existing, and no man must pay for his sins, as surely as water will wet us, as surely as fire will burn, the gods of the copybook headings with terror and slaughter return. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Copybook Headings podcast. If you're a new listener just joining us for the first time, this show is inspired by the poem by Rudyard Kipling called The Gods of the Copybook Headings. And every week we take an old proverb, saying, or maxim, and we break it down to see what we can learn from it. I am your host, Patrick Payne, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Andrew Stevens. Andrew, how are you? Hey, I'm doing great tonight. How are you? Doing awesome. Uh, and in addition to Andrew, we is, we have another guest this time, a very special guest, I'm, one I'm very excited about. The one and only uh, Clay Martin is here uh, joining us. Uh, Clay, thank you so much for joining us. How are you, man? Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, doing fantastic, man. Excited to be here. Yeah. Uh, so uh, for those listening who don't know don't know who Clay Martin is, uh, uh, can you give us a little intro about yourself, some of your some of your experiences and. And then we'll kind of jump into to, to the proverb for this week. Sure. Yeah. So uh, most people know me now as an author. I've written uh, five books, including uh, two survival books. Uh, I forgot the names just right this second. <laughs> Concrete Jungle and uh, Prairie Fire, which are my, my big sellers, and then three fictional books as well. Uh, I got into that. I'm actually a retired Green Beret. And before that, I was a scout sniper in the Marine Corps. So I did a full military career and then crossed over into kind of a gun journalism is a, as a, as a job. And then from that, uh, transferred over to actually writing books for a living. Yeah. Uh, that's kind of how I found out about you is, is reading concrete jungle and prairie fire. And and now mm-hmm. I feel guilty. I didn't know you were an author of five books. I've only read the three. I've read the, the, yeah. the, the, Wendigo and the two and the other ones. So now I feel bad. I got two more. I got to catch up on. Most people don't know about the other two because they were through a publishing company. I've had a lot more success as a self-published author. So most people actually don't know about the first two. Well, heck yeah. Well, good. I'm, uh, I, I'm, I'm very glad to see the the success that you've had. And, uh, well, I'd like to talk about those books a little bit, uh, a little bit, um, here in a minute. Cause they're, I, I think both of those, the nonfictions you've, we've written are excellent. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you, you picked the, uh, the proverb for this week and, and, and I love it when our guests do that, when they kind of bring one that they, that they, that they like or, or resonates with them. Do you want to, do you want to lay it on us this week, Clay? Sure, sure, and it's uh, it's actually funny when you asked me for it because I where I attributed it to the first time was wrong. Uh, the uh, the the proverb is uh, co- petting scorpions with a compassionate hand will only get you stung, which I had actually first heard. It's in one of my old notebooks full of proverbs, first attributed to uh, to Gandhi, uh, but it turns out that's actually not true. It's actually a, a Zen proverb from before Gandhi's time, and uh, nobody's actually really sure if it's what its what its origin is that I could find. Hmm. Yeah. I didn't find a ton either. Andrew, did you find much on it? No, no, not. I didn't, I didn't find much either. Um, I found a version, you know, just on a, like a, a Reddit quotes page. So who knows how, how reliable it is, but you know, whoever pats scorpions with the hand of compassion gets stung and it says it's a Berber proverb. So, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was hard to find, uh, hard to find a source on this one. It, it was, I, I found just enough to know I didn't make it up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you start questioning yourself like, did I just invent this? No. <laughs> you know, that wouldn't be the worst thing to have a have a guest come on that had invented his own proverb. We we, we would have taken that and run with it. We don't have a problem with that at all. Yeah. If they, especially if it was a good one, like, oh, 
yeah. the Wizard of the Ages. Like, no, we made that up last year. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, yeah, this proverb is is excellent and, and fits, I think, really well with with a lot of your experience. Um, uh, you 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 know, are a veteran of the GWAT and and done some some cool guy stuff back in your back in in, in your time. And uh, I'd like to ask you a little bit about that. And, and what, what was it about this proverb that based on your experiences kind of resonated with you? So I, I think this one actually kind of strikes to the heart of uh, we see so many like feel good proverbs out there, you know, like uh, do unto mm-hmm. others and, uh, you know, all the uh, you know, everything's everything's great. And everything's fine. But that's actually not not true in real life. Uh, this fits in the same vein as a, a leopard doesn't change its spots. And it's something I've seen over and over again. And it's something that uh, fortunately and unfortunately, a lot of people that haven't seen that side of life, uh, don't, they don't understand it. And it kind of allows them to go through life uh, kind of happy-go-lucky and, uh, and trusting strangers like that thing. The reality is, is some people cannot be redeemed, if, if you will. Uh, they can only be you know, punished or, or gotten rid of. And uh, that's not a nice thing to say, but it, it's true. And uh, we see this from the soldier side. Uh, cops see this certainly, especially homicide guys, things that work some of the you know the terrible crimes uh, side. Uh, so yeah, so that one really kind of struck me as uh, it's something to remember. Uh, you can't be nice to everyone. Niceness doesn't get you out of every situation. Yeah. So I imagine during your your experiences, you know, with you know Taliban, some other places, you probably saw seen some gnarly stuff that has kind of led you to to this belief that. You know, once someone crosses a certain threshold, right. they're kind of maybe past the point of no return. Would you? Is, was that fair to say? That's that's exactly right. And uh, and again, you know, it's not. We also hear so many times in our lives we're not supposed to judge. Uh, however, mm-hmm. there are situations where, especially from my line of work, you have to you have to be judge, jury, mm-hmm. executioner, if you will. Sure. And uh, this is not this is not something that's said of like you know the normal guy in the street that we're finding you know the purse snatcher or the uh, for that matter even the idealist that was uh, there to uh, you know battle the great Satan or because we're in his country like I get that this more fits in along the line of like uh, beheader cells or uh, torture cell guys that kind of thing especially the torture cell guys like once you and I, I honestly don't know that a lot of people know this from the GWAT either but there were some terrible, terrible things that happened uh, on the enemy side, especially in Iraq. There were guys that specialized in capturing people that had helped us and like drawing their kneecaps out and, you know, putting cigars out their eyeballs and stuff where they killed them. And when you find those kinds of, there's no help for that dude. Uh, you're not going to capture that guy and, and stick him in, uh, I don't know, jail for five years. And he's going to come out and start running an orphanage. Like it's, it's not going mm-hmm. to happen. You know, and again, so it's a it's a it's a weighty and, and serious subject matter, but it is something that that, that we saw. And uh, I, again, I, I see that you know, especially certain of, of police see. Uh, you know, we're not talking about like a guy that's a drug addict. We're talking about like a you know a, a serial killer. Like, what, what are you going to do yeah. with that? You can't really redeem that that person. In mm-hmm. my opinion. So with, I was thinking with with this one, you know, with the scorpion. You know, being being what it is from just by nature. Do you think that's how it is with with these people? Um, that there's just something that has been that's broken in them from from the start, or is it something that it's a normal person at one point who, after making a series of decisions, is you know in the depths of hell? You know, like what what do you what do you think? 
Now that's a very good analysis, and it's a, it's a very good good question. I, I think it can be both. And uh, again, this is you know all all personal opinions. So I got I got a psych degree or something like that. Yeah. But I I think we've all of us, especially if we live a certain kind of life, we look back on it. We've known people that were just born bad, like maybe not to the extent of like I'm talking about right now, but they were they were never going to get past, and from the, like a very young age, they were never going to get past that. You knew somebody was going to end up in prison, or you knew that guy was going to be a, mm-hmm. a serial liar and a criminal his entire life. I, I think to a degree, it's like that. Some people are just born, I, I don't know, with a, a mismanaged soul or, or something wrong with them. And I think for others, it's it, it can be a series of decisions. So they can go both ways. So you mean to tell me that someone who uses a power drill on another human being, you know, liberal democracy coming to their country isn't going to fix that? Right. right. Yeah, we're not going to send that guy to, uh, you know, rehab and then to Harvard. Like, it's not going to work out. It's not good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Okay. Well, yeah, that's, that's man, it's, it's a gnarly thing to think about. But I, I, I think uh, um, I think it's it, it, this cautionary tale of once you know who the person is and what, what they're capable of, you have to kind of treat them accordingly. Right. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, it doesn't even have to be as extreme as I'm, I'm talking about here. This is also, uh, it also matches up well with uh, a politicians thinking about, for instance, how many times do they lie to you that you're going to come back to, oh, he's turned around this time, or yeah, he's, he's going to do what we want him to do this time. It's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, even someone, yeah. even in a business setting, if there was someone who scammed you, you know, few times right. like at some point you're just gonna be like i'm not just gonna deal with this guy anymore right or yeah even down to incompetence it doesn't have to be yeah. the escape you just yeah pure incompetence yeah you can't at, at some point you have to draw the line and yeah it's, it's really kind of the strength of the proverb as well yeah well i want to ask you a little bit about your books because that's kind of how i found out found your name and i i think they're excellent they're kind of must reads for anybody who considers themselves interested in like preparedness or anything like that um, and, and I think you, with your experience as a Green Beret, are kind of uniquely um, suited for writing a book like this. Um, for, for those who aren't aware of what Green Berets do and how what makes you guys a little bit different from a lot of the other uh, kind of special forces guys um, or, um, um, you know, special units that are out there, the Navy SEALs, et cetera. Uh, could you kind of explain uh, what it sure. was that you, you guys did? Sure. The, uh, the the big key difference between us is actually our primary mission. Uh, and it also has to do with the fact that we have to go to language school before we can graduate, too. Like, I spoke Arabic. Uh, I don't speak it very well now, but you know, 10, 15 years ago, I could. Everyone has a language requirement that is fits to our region that we go to. Because when we show up there, we're expected to train our own little army. Uh, mm. With On the, the very crazy into this you could just go somewhere with a big duffel bag full of money and guns and uh make an army out of nothing uh through most of the gwat it was kind of a handover process but yeah that's the expectation of us is that we will build our own force that's competent and uh, and capable and we will also work with them and like lead them in combat so it's uh it's a very different experience than like leading americans but yeah you could be leading you know literal like african bushmen or uh, guys that were uh you know, just normal Iraqi guys with a real job three weeks ago or, uh, or something like that. So I think that actually really helped me with, with that book because I'm already accustomed to breaking things down to like a non-military mind and down to like mm-hmm. a, a level where everybody can understand it. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think that really helped me with that, with that process. 
Yeah, and so you've you've seen up close and personal kind of what these failed states or semi-failed states look like. And uh, yeah. you might you might say you have a PhD in SHTF, you know, something like right. that. <laughs> that's, that's very fair. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly right. Okay, and, and so the, go, go ahead. ahead. Well, that's the funny thing about it is it doesn't look like most people think it looks like from the movies, you know, from the movies, it's going to be like, I don't know, I got some shotgun shells and a bandolier and a trash bag on my head. And, you know, we're the last people alive or, you know, something. It's really usually not like that. Things kind of, things come apart and they can get very nasty, but there's always some semblance of the life that we left behind too. Mm -hmm. You still have to do things like uh, cook dinner and uh, take a shower and uh, you know, all that kind of thing. And those are things that people don't think about. Most people, they, they kind of want to have a gun fantasy for this type of thing, which would be cool, but it's not real life. It's uh, real life is yeah. it's actually a lot harder to, uh, you know, brush your teeth and uh, keep the hygiene going around the uh, homestead and then uh, you know, use the guns when you have to. Uh, so, yeah, so it's definitely like a like a different perspective. I thought the books were a complete breath of fresh air, unique to anything I've ever read before. And I mean, I've, I've been guilty of the gun fantasy before too. I think who hasn't that like, you know, you see bad people and you're like, man, I wish I could just go shoot that guy. You know what I mean? For lack of a better term, it's like, you know, this guy's ruining this country or ruining that man. It would be easy just to take this guy out, but you know, it doesn't always work that way. It doesn't. No. And uh, it goes back to the, uh, the idea too of, Pre, Pre-COVID especially is really bad. A lot of people's idea of, of getting ready for a, a bad event was just stockpile guns and ammo. Like, that's it. I got my pile of guns and ammo. I'm straight. And like, no, 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 man. You need like some raviolis, like some band-aids, uh, probably like some bleach for your water. Yeah, like you need all kinds of other stuff besides that. Uh, in fact, if you're using all that, like you've already made a mistake. You, you've, already t- you've already done a terrible job. And, yeah. uh Actually, tying back in with the program, too, this is one of the things, this is one of the other reasons that the proverb is important. I may have actually included this one in Concrete Jungle now that I think about it. The reality is you're going to end up dealing with and trading with other people that are also in a dire situation. That's how these things go. You can't fight or you don't, it's not worth your effort to fight or, or vice versa, or it's not, it's not beneficial. So same thing, even people that aren't in business or accustomed to uh, business transactions that work in a, you know, a different type of environment are going to have to get used to that if things get really bad. Uh, we even saw this in times like after uh, after Katrina where people are trading you know, something they have for gasoline for their generator. Mm-hmm. Uh, understanding who people are and uh, being, being shrewd and then also you know, understanding there's bad people out there looking to fleece you uh, or steal from you, those are all important things. Yeah. And, and what I loved about the books it also is it goes deeper than just, oh, here's a list of crap to buy. That's usually what a lot of prepper right. books is. It's like you went a lot more into into some other areas, which um, maybe you could talk for, for a moment here about just like in terms of like building networks and, and sure. learning how to get stuff, that sort of thing. Could you, could you talk about that for a moment? Sure, absolutely. And that, that's actually one of my pet peeves too, is, is thinking that you can buy your way out of a situation you can't. And this is not to you know throw stones in, uh, in other people's uh, pawns or anything, but yeah, telling somebody a list of, of stuff they need to have is not really helpful. Plus, like, what if you lose your house on the first day? The East Palestine style. What if you have to leave with a little tiny backpack? All your prep stuff did nothing for you. What's always much more important, and this goes, this is actually one of the strengths of us as, as Green Berets as well, is having friends that know how to do stuff 
all right, and are kind of in your little tribe and understand your little mindset. Because no matter who you are, too, like you can't do everything. Uh, I can't do everything. Uh, I can do some stuff pretty well, but I can't, uh, you know, perform brain surgery. Uh, you know, I'm not, you know, I actually can't fix my own plumbing very well. <laughs> you know, I'm not sure they have to be <laughs> an expert in these types of things. Uh, I haven't had to, you know, midwife an animal. So even if I have, even if I come into animals, like I don't know anything about taking care of them. I need somebody that can do these other things. And there's not enough hours in the day for me to be able to absorb all that knowledge. It also goes back to just basic, like tactical level safety as well. Uh, I put, I did put this directly in the book and I tell people this all the time and they're, they're kind of, uh, some of them are kind of shocked by it, but like, look, man, I got a resume that's like this deep on commando skills. I'm like commando guy of the universe. Uh, I can't even secure my own safety in, a, in, a, in an environment like this or, a, you know, a super survivalist environment because I have to sleep sometime. Like I'm pretty hard. I can go about three days, but I'm eventually going to have to take a nap and I need somebody yeah. else to watch out while I do that. <clears throat> yeah. So, yeah, I, um, I, I've also read your books and, and, and enjoy them. Um, when it comes to like, um, I guess the, the way I envision this and correct me if I'm wrong, what you did, you know, out in the field as a green beret is you and your team are kind of the core of this, you know, this army that you're building. Right. And that's, yeah. and that's kind of the principles that you're teaching in your book that to, to create that same kind of core with, with different specialties, communications and medical, um, now, when it comes to, um, I guess, w when you were doing this uh, across the world or when you imagine doing this in, in our country in a, in a bad situation, like, do you, when, you, when you're building your army, so to speak, um, how, how do you, I guess, judge those people? How do you assess them as, you know, are they scorpions? Do they get the gentle right. hand, right? Um, how what do you think? Uh, how did, how did you do that? It's, it's a very good question. Uh, now we had a huge advantage overseas. We, you know, we obviously had the 12 of us that we could trust while we go out the back. Um, mm -hmm. then the most important thing is it takes time. All right. You have to really invest time and not just in like watching somebody work or do their job, but in like a social, like a social situation, we would do that. Like our, our jobs were like 18 hours a day. Cause we would do our task and then we would go drink tea or, you know, whatever with the guys seeing how they interact with, with, uh, with other people. All right. It's just like uh, anybody else. That's like a new friend. You have a new friend over the Super Bowl party. All right. When they've, when they've been there long enough, the mask can't stay on. Like you really start to see who that person is. Mm -hmm. So that's the biggest thing is it does take time. Uh, I would tell people also like, be very careful who you bring into like your inner circle, which is like the, uh, the inner group that we're talking about. Uh, and you just, you, you do have to spend a long time before you decide that that person's uh, okay or cool or not. With the outer shell of, of people, that's for the people that maybe aren't aren't on the uptake fast enough. They're not really picking these things up fast enough. So they're going to show up with maybe not nearly as many skills as they should have or, or nearly as much stuff as they should kind of have. Uh, those people you kind of have to keep on a, a leash, for lack of a better word, because somebody that, that, uh, that didn't figure it out before can really trust them to like adapt to a new situation. Uh, as well as you don't know them that well. Let's not say that they're useless. They're absolutely not. Those people could end up being like the, the best guy that you have. But uh, keeping those two layers is very important. What about like, it, let's say you get to know somebody and you start to trust them. Is there a way you kind of 
can uh, assess whether or not they'd be able to do something difficult. You know what I mean? Like maybe they're a really honest, good person, but they don't have what it takes to do something hard. No, that's a very good question. Most of the guys that I see that are able to answer that question, it's because they've gone ahead and they've made like a little training group. Uh, so like two times a month, they'll, they'll like meet up and this isn't all just like gun stuff either. They'll meet up and they'll be like, okay, we have a four hour block on a Sunday afternoon or whatever. And this is what we're doing this time. And sometimes it'll be like physical challenges or I will be shooting or something like that. Uh, but you kind of have to go through those kinds of exercises or, or be put in those kind of, even if they're kind of fake, difficult situations, otherwise there's really no way to tell. The only other way to tell is to wait and see until life throws that guy one and see how he reacts to it. But mm-hmm. that's unpredictable. Maybe maybe roll with him a little at jujitsu and see if he taps oh, the yeah. pressure. You know? Yeah, no. <laughs> see if he's a spaz. That's a bigger that's a bigger <laughs> problem than if he taps the pressure. So he's just like, yeah. ah yeah, that's that's not good. That's not a good person to have in a high pressure situation. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you wrote these books. Uh, pre-COVID. So yeah. you kind of seemed like a prophet coming in because now all of a sudden there's this there's this pandemic and you're like, eh, <laughs> eh, I wrote these books about this thing. So um, wh- wh- what was that like? What was the reaction like when you when that happened? It was uh, it was really wild because Concrete Jungle I had written like 85% of it prior to COVID. So the way that works, I still had a, a contract for like a publishing company at the time and an agent and all that stuff. And I'd been shot down by every publishing company in the America. They're like, nobody cares about this per survivalist <laughs> stuff anymore. That's nonsense. Uh, and uh, so it was just, it was actually, uh, I didn't even have a copy of it anymore. One of my friends that I'd asked to proofread it still had a copy in his inbox of his email. So when the, uh, when the summer of 2020 kicked off, I was like, oh, what? Like, I, I have this. Like, I have this right now. And uh, so he got it to me and sent it to me, and it was it was wildly popular. And uh, it's funny, as people ask, like, how did I see that coming? Because I had actually it was because I had lived in Oregon, and I, I saw the tension that was going on over there, which which a lot of people don't understand. Uh, the tension in Oregon back in like 2019, 2018, was probably worse than anywhere else in the country, uh, mm-hmm. because they have like a a super progressive like two counties that rule them. And the rest of Oregon is like not only like good old boy, like redneck as the day is long rednecks, but they also have like legitimately the only place I've ever seen like like swastikas, like flying on trucks. Like they have like a like a like a neo-Nazi underground that's like visible. And I was like, we, we moved over there and I was like, oh, what, bro? Like what is happening right now? Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's crazy. Like. I've been yeah. all over the country. I've been to you know Alab- the backwoods of Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi. I've never seen anything like it. I was like, wow. And uh, seeing those forces kind of grind against each other and the tension that was being created when things were still kind of being held under control by like uh, you know the police or, or, or power of the state, I really started thinking, I'm like, oh, man, like if this kind of tension could be brought and then exploded all across the country, what would that look like? And that was actually the impetus for Upper uh, Concrete Jungle. That's when I started writing it. So Concrete Jungle was the first one, and then you followed it up with Prairie Fire. That was the second one, right? Yes. So I wrote that one. Uh, I wrote Prairie Fire between uh, July and October of 2020. Uh, and the, the big one from that was uh, I saw the election problems coming. I don't know exactly what yeah. they're going to be, but that was, a, that was a big devotion to, uh, to Prairie Fire. But to me, just 
from an intelligence analyst background, that one was kind of obvious right around like July, August of 2020. I'm like, there's no way this election is going on without a hitch uh, with all this COVID stuff going on. And uh, there was even, I, I believe it was Nancy Pelosi actually came out of the press conference. Like, I don't even know if we could have the election. I was like, there is no way, <laughs> absolutely no way. Nancy Pelosi's just going to let Donald Trump have another term like free. Like that's not going to happen. Like this is going to be a disaster. And then, you know, it kind of was. Yeah. So um, in terms of what you're seeing now, um, can you kind of compare and contrast that to some of the things you've seen overseas? How close are we to having some, some kind of big meltdown? Uh, are we, are, I mean, it seemed like we were right on the precipice there in 2020 and then things kind of calmed down, but, but that's not uncommon, right? Things can right. escalate and then come back and then go right. back up. Right. So w- w- yeah. where do you see we are right now? Oh man, do you want the, uh, do you want the guarded answer? Or do you want the full tinfoil hat answer? I, I'll give you either one. <laughs> Let, let's go, let's go full, 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 uh, full tinfoil hat. Or whatever. Actually, yeah, full, yeah. That's what I, that's what I'm talking about. That's the one I prefer anyway, because that's the one realistically that I think it is. Okay. Now I, I truly believe that we are at the end of empire. Uh, I think we're, we're just, we're done. We're at the same point as uh Roman empire collapsed, British empire collapsed for all intents and purposes, all, all the other empires. We're just falling apart. And uh, nothing, I believe, is going to glue that back together. We're having this like crisis of competence where airplanes are falling out of the sky and another roads where everything's messed up. Our money is super just is garbage. Uh, the whole economic system is like teetering on the edge of a collapse. Nobody wants to do anything anymore, which I totally get. Uh, military is basically collapsing from lack of, uh, of recruits, uh, as well as lack of competence of the people that are, that are remaining in there. So I, I don't think this is like some, like, you know, we wake up tomorrow and like, I don't know the Chinese, that's, that's all nonsense. I believe we're just in a slow collapse and it will eventually we'll get to that cascading effect where it's more visible. But, uh, I really believe that that's like an, an inevitable conclusion at this point. Uh, I just think that's where we are. We don't make anything anymore and we have too much kind of dead weight, if you will. And that's, that's a harsh term, but I, I do kind of mean we have too many like make believe jobs and, and crazy stuff that only really works as long as we're the economic powerhouse of the world. So what I believe happens is somebody calls our bluff and it basically just like, like breaks our money or we can't really enforce our will anymore. And then we kind of like fall apart as we, uh, you know, try to try to be the old American. We're just not anymore. Crime gets worse, uh, exponentially worse. Maybe even, you know, like cartels from Mexico, uh, not like up north, but like towards the border, step in and fill that power vacuum as state power collapses. Uh, All those networks get stronger. We just kind of enter a, a period of decline for a very long time. Well, that's not uh, it's not a, a pretty picture, but I, I appreciate the, the, the realistic answer <laughs> no, it's, to it. It's it's not it's not pretty. It's definitely not pretty. But I, I do unfortunately I, I don't see a way around that. I don't I don't see I don't see anything bringing us back from that brink personally. What are your views on like the concept of like the anarcho tyranny kind of where the, the the laws are selectively applied to where they can't stop criminals, but they'll still lock you in jail for defending yourself kind of thing? Is, is that right. going to be a transitionary period? 
I, I believe that's part of it, yes. And, and people are already getting tired of that. Uh, they're they're looking at that being done, and that's where you start getting vigilante justice, both towards criminals as well as towards like state power. And that's a very dangerous step. Mm-hmm. Uh, because once that happens, especially if it exposes like a paper tiger that really can't stop it, oh man, uh, all of a sudden the whole country's California. Uh, you know, it's mm-hmm. under $900, we can steal it. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, Andrew, do you have a question? Yeah, I, I, I do. In a, based on your experience or on your imagination, what in you know a collapsing society or a deteriorating one, um, like what does a gentle hand look like? What does a hand of compassion look like? Um, coming back to our proverb. Oh yeah, no, no, no. That's a good one. Um, I think, unfortunately, it it also includes things like uh, faith in the political system. Uh, I really think you have to look at that and say, we, I shouldn't even waste my time doing this anymore. Or I certainly shouldn't believe that the political system is going to bring any kind of solution uh, that's going to help me. That's actually going to make this okay for me again. I mean, just look at, uh, look at the stuff that uh, the DA from Atlanta is saying on the stand today. I mean, it's crazy. Like, I don't care what your politics are. But, uh the, the DA that is uh, basically trying to uh, indict the former president of the United States stole like a million dollars from her, uh, her little uh, DA's office. I mean, it's, it's nuts. Not only is it nuts, but the things that are coming out of her mouth on the stand are crazy. And that's what a political solution will get you. Uh, it's not just her. I mean, that's all up and down the eastern seaboard or, or any major city. You have people at that same level of of competence uh in stealing everything that's not tied down uh, we, we call this the loot phase of the collapse and that's kind of what it is this is grab everything that you can face and i i i'm not even that mad about it like i get it so to me that the biggest one that's compassionate hand is either yes it's belief in the political system or it's failure to understand how bad things are going to get and truly you know getting yourself ready for this mm-hmm. So that's, that's the, um, that's, that's grabbing the scorpion of just kind of being in denial about that. Exactly. Um, What do you think, um, you know, like thinking back to Iraq, you know, what Mm -hmm. did normal people, like, what did normal people do? Like, um, to their levels of compassion with each other, um, in just in a day to day life, like I know there's definitely like a fall, a collapse of trust right. largely, but, but not entirely. Cause as you say, people yeah. still need to eat. They still need to, oh, to shower. The, right. So here's the wild thing. Like for farmers and stuff, like nothing changed. Uh, yeah. the only change was they, they got cell phones and they got a grant from us for pickup trucks all of a sudden they were having, they, were, <laughs> they wouldn't have even known, honestly, like if the, you know, if mm-hmm. the, if the political system changed, like it just got a little bit better for them. Uh, and that's, that's the thing people miss. Like the lights didn't stay off that long. Uh, people don't know that either. Uh, lights stayed off for about two weeks, uh, because those guys that work at the power plant figured out real quick, like, even if the government's not paying me anymore, I have a skill and a thing and uh, I can trade this electricity for stuff. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's something that you'll see a lot of, uh, it probably never in our lifetimes be as like reliable and, and nice as it is right now, but things won't just go instant Mad Max world. Uh, people will still have things to trade, uh, places the power will stay on, people will still try to like build regional systems that work. I'd just be a lot more, I think, you know, bartering and, uh, and stuff like that. 
the biggest thing that I think is important for people is, is having your own food security. And I, I don't mean like 10 gallon buckets full of rice. I mean, preferably like animals that are alive that reproduce rapidly. Uh, that are small enough that like you can feed, you know, 10 to 20 people uh, on a single slaughter, uh, which kind of rules out cows, but uh, smaller stuff, you know, sheep, goats, rabbits, chickens, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then uh, just having your, your crew ready and, you know, not like we're going to, you know, take over city hall or some nonsense like that. We're going to go to somebody's house or somebody's compound for lack of a better word. And uh, we're just going to kind of ride this thing out. Our kids are still going to play with Legos. And the only difference is going to be somebody's going to sit a room with a gun all the time, make sure that nobody steals our stuff. Yeah. So you said that was most important. So you view food of uh, security and, and, and you view that as one of the most vulnerable places then? Yes. Oh, yes. Big time. Just looking at the uh, logistics of what it takes to feed this country, it's, uh, it's, it's a lot. Uh, just the trucks to get stuff back and forth, as well as... I, I understood this somewhat when I wrote Prairie Fire, but I understand it a lot more now living in, a, in farm country. Uh, I was thinking that like right now, uh, like one farmer does the work of like 100 farmers from 1910. Uh, that's actually not true. He does, a, he does the work of 100 farmers from like 1986. That's how advanced the technology is, which means he does the work of like 1,000 farmers or more from 1910. Mm-hmm. Uh, the technology has invaded that space so much too that it's, I mean, it's, 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 it's nuts. Uh, how much like one guy can cut his own grain uh, with the with the machines that they have now, little GPS guided carts that you know take the uh, the stuff off of his combine and take it over the truck, it's it's crazy. So the the food vulnerability is a huge deal, and that collapses not just from things like uh, uh, fuel, which is a big one, but it actually almost collapsed in 2021 because we couldn't get uh, parts for the tractors around here, uh, even even. Uh, like a normal combine runs off, you know, the same microprocessors that they, you know, made in Taiwan, they stopped making mm-hmm. all kind of machinery started going to, uh, to pot. Uh, we actually had local machine shops start making parts that they wouldn't have dreamed of doing mechanical parts, uh, three, four years prior to that, you could buy one for 20 bucks from China. Well, now instead you've got to use a, you know, a machinist and a CNC machine for two hours to make one the hard way. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's very vulnerable. Um, talking about fuel, is that something that's kind of a, a fantasy that you could, the, uh, the idea that you could get some to fill up your car or, or was there still fuel in the air? I mean, I imagine in a lot of the yep. areas you were in, there was still some fuel. I mean, it, what, what, what's oh, yeah. the story there? There was, uh, there was actually a lot of fuel. Uh, not, not like we have it now. Most of it was sold in the black market and it was about $8 a gallon back in like, you know, 2007, 2008. I think it's the same thing here. The, uh, the difference being, we have a lot more cars than they did. Uh, private car ownership was not as widespread like, say, in Iraq uh, before we got there. Uh, after that, they started actually importing a, a bunch of cars from Europe, and that made the, the the fuel crunch even worse. But we already have a bunch. So I still think there will be fuel available. It goes back to that whole concept of, uh, you know, the guys working at the refinery might take the first week off and hide in the basement. But after, like, the sky doesn't fall, somebody especially being Americans or entrepreneurial spirit is going to be like, mm-hmm. well, I don't know. I don't care if the corporation from New York still owns this refinery, but uh, we do. Uh, yeah. So here's what we're going to do. We're, we're going to make some gas and some diesel and uh, it will never be at the same level of production. But I still think there'll be fuels available, especially if you live close to somewhere that they refine them. Interesting. 
Um, so what do you, what are your, like, let's say best case scenario. You said, you said that you think there's some kind of major collapse, kind of inevitable, the end of our empire. And I can definitely see, see, see that perspective, but what's the best case scenario. There's some sort of collapse or some sort of re, uh, alignment. What, what does it look like coming out on the other end? We've heard people talk about like a national divorce country breaking up. What, What do you see? I see as the the best possible outcome actually just that like uh, like regional powers emerging from kind of the the cargo of the United States, and if you happen to listen where this you know got it reasonably together, like it'll be probably not that bumpy of a road if if that's how it goes. Like uh, you know Texas tags in with uh, Louisiana and Oklahoma, like okay, we're the new southeast state of whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would actually be a pretty functional economy right off the bat. You got a you know like a seaport, fuels, uh, raw resources. Uh, for for several places that could actually be pretty easy. Uh, I think it's worst in the the population centers, like uh, like towards the uh, the East Coast, because they have the least kind of uh, they have the highest population and they make the least amount of stuff, uh, mm-hmm. like actually produce it. Uh, there's not enough farmland out there to actually feed all of them. Uh, if, if we go to some economy that doesn't, you know, require LED lights in an office, like New York City is not looking great all of a sudden. Yeah, for sure. Um, so in a situation like that, when the when the the power of the federal government is declining, it, it's hard sometimes to wrap your head around that because the federal government has been so powerful for so long. Right. I mean, they have eyes right. and ears everywhere. They know what everybody's right. doing. The NSA can read right. your texts, all this stuff. Right. So watching that decline, do you, do you view that as kind of more of a, like an economic thing? Like the dollar becomes worthless. So they stop being able to pay people or what do you think is the precipitous moment where, where that really starts to turn? It, it is. It's economic is a big deal, but it's not the only big deal. It, it a lot of it actually is just, competence of the average person uh, that mm-hmm. works there anymore. And uh, I mean, we've seen those organizations kind of start, they've even started falling apart like 20 years ago, like uh, like an Edward Snowden moment that would not have happened to the 1960s CIA because they would have buried his ass in a cornfield somewhere before he could open his mouth. And that is a level of competence that's, that's different. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, we are already seeing things like kind of fall apart on, on that level. I do think economic is probably like the the big one. Uh, and I don't think it'll be like a light switch either. I think we'll see like a decline over a period of months. But, uh, you know, we, we go back to like a 2008 bubble crisis. I don't think we could print our way out of that this time. Mm-hmm. And we, we certainly couldn't if uh, if the BRICS nations were strong and uh, you had the choice of like well, have dollars that they, you know, print by the, the you know, the, the shipload. Or a gold-backed currency backed by the ascending Russia, the ascending China, and the ascending India. Mm-hmm. What, what do you think um, in a situation like that? What do you think the role of these, some of these big corporations are, like these big tech firms and stuff? Right? I mean, what would they do in a situation like that? Do you think? Fall over and die? <laughs> I, I don't. I don't <laughs> really? honestly know. <laughs> no, I mean that really. That's a okay. That's a tough one because we have, we live in such an interconnected world, and, and technology is so much a part of what we do. It's probably it's an interesting question. Uh, let, let's put it that way. Um, I I don't know, but I think they would lose a lot of power uh, and a lot of people, uh, and I think it would be decades, maybe even before 
America could build, you know, companies like that again. Hmm. I think a lot of your talent would just uh, defect to wherever the highest pay was, which would probably be one of those BRICS countries and it'd be just like we have it here. You know, everybody comes here to work hmm. in our tech firms now, vice versa, hmm. they just evaporate and move, uh, lose a lot of prestige. And uh, yeah, just, I mean, a lot of them, I think, would just keel over effectively. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The yeah especially the ones that yeah especially the ones that you know that uh you know grubhub or something <laughs> you know, right yeah right probably... yeah, yeah. <laughs> facebook like who are they going to employ yeah. <laughs> right right yeah. or you know some chinese investor will buy facebook and it'll be based out of beijing now or something like that yeah yeah interesting um do you think go, kind of going back to the proverb a little bit do you think that uh people not following this proverb and treating the scorpions with the gentle hand is at least in part what got us to this point. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you could definitely say that. Uh, we've, we've been very tolerant of a lot of things that we shouldn't have uh, government overreach wise, especially mm-hmm. um, we've, we, we've kind of brought our own economic destruction on ourselves too, with all of the, the nonsense that we've done with uh printing quantitative easing and and everything else you know back to like the uh you remember the s p bailout of like 1986 so uh I don't wanna... you guys might be too young for this one. i i should actually be too young for this one too but it was uh <laughs> this was a huge scandal and this was it was sometime in the 80s the late 80s so basically they had to bail out every small bank in the midwest because every bank manager there had got caught up in these like pyramid schemes from wall street and they were like all defunct like overnight and uh, they did the government printed i mean it was not quite as big as like the tarp of 2008 but it was a lot i mean it was a lot when what they should have done right then was let those let those banks go under like if you're not smart enough to run a bank like well guess what your (laughs) bank collapse goodbye that's actually you know free market capitalism that's how we do things but uh, they didn't. And as far as I know, that was the first one. And we've kept that process going now for all these years. I, I was, there was actually one before. They, they bailed out uh, Chrysler, actually, in 1979. Same thing. One of the big three automakers. I mean, they were, they were done. They were, like, dead broke. And rather than let them go bankrupt, the government came in, actually bought, if I remember correctly, bought Chrysler and then sold it back to Chrysler for, like, pennies on the dollar over the course of, like, a year. And, uh, yeah instead of just letting a, a bad product, which it was at the time, go under. So we, we've kind of sown the seeds of our own destruction this way. Yeah. I, I, I do have a, a question. I don't, if uh, It's going to take us probably in a little different direction. Uh, but before we hit record here, you were mentioning that you kind of collect proverbs and you yeah. uh, have got notebooks full of them and stuff. Like what, uh, what started that interest and... In, um, really interested about about all that. You know, honestly, I I I don't know what started. I'm trying to remember like the first. I think I might have even gotten like a book, like a you know a printed book of Zen mm-hmm. proverbs like a long time ago. And I you know I don't understand three quarters of them because that's kind of how it goes. And I probably still don't understand three quarters of how Zen proverbs <laughs> work. <laughs> And you know, some of the really good ones too, like you have one understanding when you're like 17 and then one when you're yeah. 25 and then one when you're 35. Uh, yeah. But I really liked that. And this was kind of when the internet was uh, was new. So all of a sudden I had a lot of like access to, you would see them back then randomly pop. Like people have that for like the banner on their website, their uh, yeah. ancient website. 
so I kind of started uh, like writing them down because you know computers were terrible back then. It's like you could screen cap things, or you know, or your computer would survive more than six months. You were burning through hard drives. So I started writing them down, and uh, it's funny because yeah, now they're even. Uh, yeah, I remember when they were like the uh, the loading screens on like Call of Duty, the video game. Mm -hmm. uh, there was always oh, you know, yeah. some proverb. Yeah, yeah. I remember it. So yeah, somewhere along the way, uh, I've I've got like notebooks because I would the ones I thought were cool, I would just write them down and, and keep them. And uh, yeah, I've got you know, I I'm looking around my office if I have one of those notebooks <laughs> sitting here. But yeah, I don't know. They've always just kind of grabbed me, and I, I've just I've always been a big fan. I, I, do you remember Magpul's old website? Like the, the one oh, yeah. of the original ones. They used to have quotes and stuff, and like old proverbs oh, yeah. that would come up on yeah. the screen every now and again. That's right. Yeah, that was a long time ago, but they did. Long right. time ago. Yeah, they did. I forgot. It was like about one of their that. first yeah. websites, that probably. Yeah, that's cool. Well, yeah, man, that's awesome that you you share a love of Proverbs like we do. I, I think it's awesome. Um, uh, on our on our Twitter page, we have uh, the the quote that uh, a proverb is the the wisdom of many and the wit of one. So it's just one nice. person taking taking the you know some ancient wisdom, yeah. and distilling it down into a sentence or two, and and I, I love right. it. No, that's awesome. Yeah, that's absolutely true too. Well, hey man. Um, uh, well, before we wrap it up, Andrew, you got anything else before I before we kind of wrap it up? But yeah, this is I don't know. It's been good. No, I just yeah, I just wanted to say thank you and um, uh, really uh, have enjoyed reading your stuff and I hope to to read some more. I don't know if we have to dig up your your first books here. Um, what what's on what's the on the horizon for you as far as like your next book, your next project? Uh, I actually, uh, it's funny, uh, writing is, is difficult, I guess, is the, the right way to say it. <laughs> Maybe some people it's not. For me, it's like pulling teeth to, to do a book. But I also tend to do them very fast. Like, uh, I don't think any book I've ever written has taken me more than like 45 days to do. And uh, every time I write a book, I'm like, I will never do that again. Like, it was so <laughs> terrible. And uh, it usually takes me about a year to get over that. So I just did. So um, I'm working actually on, uh, on two books right now uh, that will hopefully be out sometime in the next two to three months. And uh, that's kind of where we're at right now. It's just kind of in that mode of write, get these things done, and, and, uh, and see where they take me next. Can, can you give us a teaser or a hint on what those books might be about <laughs> just for the copybook headings listeners? <laughs> I actually can't because I haven't decided which one to finish first. Okay. <laughs> All right, sounds good. Well, we'll be we'll be waiting for those, and uh, really excited for those. I mean, man, uh, I've been super excited to talk to you, man, because it's uh, like seriously big, big fan of the books. I, I thought they were awesome. If you haven't read Clay Martin's books, Concrete Jungle and Prairie Fire, specifically those two nonfictions, uh, go check them out. You can get them everywhere, right? Amazon, anywhere. Yep, yep, yep. Exactly right. Yep. Okay. Amazon, well, hey, man, Audible, we got all that stuff. Yeah. Well, well, hey, thank you again. It's crazy to me that Audible would go for a book like that because some of the stuff's in there are a little spicy, just as an aside. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I think that's awesome. <laughs> okay, man. Hey, well, thanks again. And uh, it was great chatting with you and uh, uh, best of luck on the new books. And we can't wait to, to read them. Hey, thanks, guys. I appreciate it. I had a great time and uh, love to come back when they come out. Okay. Sounds good. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, thanks guys. guys. Bye. There are only four things certain since social progress began, that the dog returns to his vomit, and the sow returns to her mire, and the burnt fool's bandaged finger goes wobbling back to the fire, and that after this is accomplished, and the brave new world begins, when all men are paid for existing, and no man must pay for his sin, 
As surely as water will wet us, as surely as fire will burn, the gods of the copybook idiots, with terror and slaughter,